This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and there has been a bit of a shift in the market uh, for a variety of reasons that we will dig into and more, um, where family offices used to be a little bit more passive players in investment, but they're becoming much more the direct frontline uh, investors. And to break all of that down and the many new uh, things that family offices are experiencing, Dror Futter is joining me. Dror, thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. For the few people who don't know who you are, Dror, uh, why don't you give us at least your CV? Okay. Uh, well, uh, I'm a partner at, at Ramon, and then Brent is one of my uh, one of my partners. Um, but prior to going back to law firm practice, I um, I was a general counsel uh, of a venture-back startup, and before that, I was a general counsel of a venture fund. Um, and uh, so between those two experiences, I've kind of been on all sides of the table uh, in the venture game. And uh, my practice focuses on representing startups and their investors. Yeah, startups and their investors. So that's like uh, all of it. <laughs> it's yeah, I, a uh, lot. I, I can make like, like a good lawyer. I can make the arguments on both sides of the table yeah. <laughs> and have and often on the same day. Of course. Yeah, of course. Dep- yeah, depending on who happened to call you that's in right. what order. Yeah. And I, and, I can feign, and I can feign an indignation for either side. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. As any good lawyer should be able to do, of course. Yep. Yeah. There's a really in within that, like I, I set this up, you know, there's a, a somewhat unique um, set of investors that I get. I think you could loosely categorize as family offices, although I I struggle with that term because uh I know at least among my clients, whether there's a very formalized office or more of a sort of loose association of family investors, they all kind of act similarly. But for anybody that maybe is not as familiar with that term, do you want to maybe just sort of set the definitional stage on that and then we can sort of drill into their particular issues? Yeah, I think, it, you know, family office is typically kind of a, a multi-generational shop that uh, manages a large pool of wealth that was uh, accumulated uh, in prior generations. And uh, usually the prior generations set up the vehicle uh, to kind of get some uh, better management around the assets. Uh, they also be done to set up the disp- set, you know, set and limit the disposition of the assets. But you're, you're kind of looking, at, as the name implies, a, as kind of an investment vehicle that addresses the, the concerns of, of a family uh, and at least uh, at least at the founding, and most of them have a lot of commonality uh, of interest and control. And often, the founding gener- founder or founding generation you know, will, will have some kind of strong ideas about what they what they want to do. Uh, and then over time, that gets dispersed, and you know, sometimes it sometimes gets a little more complicated. Yeah, sometimes d- divvied up and divided and broken up. But um... sometimes family office divorce is not an unwise course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you think of um, I think you, most people can conceptualize, say, a, a typical investment fund or sort of PE, pri- private investment, private equity type fund or venture fund. You know, this is a, 
a private individual or sort of a company where their business is investing in other companies. It's not too, in my experience, it's not too far off that. It's just the pool of money is related people, like bloodline related people, not just we do business together. Yeah, I, I, I would say there are probably two differences. Mm-hmm. Um, one, on the kind of the positive side of the ledger, they probably have a, potentially at least a longer term time horizon than even PV shops, mm-hmm. uh, venture funds. You know, a typical venture fund, let's say until two, three years ago, was fundraising every three to four years. Uh, as things got a little frothy, they started raising every one to two years. So, you know, even though venture capital is supposed to be the long term money, Everyone was kind of laser focused on quick uh, bulk ups and valuations and exits uh, because they were constantly going back to market. Um, theoretically, at least family offices have the ability uh, and often the cash to be patient uh, and don't have to kind of show immediate investment returns. Uh, so that's a, a big positive uh, and might make this a, a kind of an opportune time for family offices. Uh, on the flip side, um, you kind of see a broad range of expertise. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of in early stage investing, when you see kind of high net worth individuals and family offices tend to be an extension of those profiles, you know, the, the typical investors are people who have either made money in real estate uh, or in medical practices. And while that makes them really good business people and, uh, you know, and, and smart people, uh, those skills don't necessarily out of the gate translate to venture. Um, and so depending on who the family office turns to for, for advice, you kind of see a, a broad spectrum of expertise. Um, and you know, while over time there's the experience kind of teaches its own lessons, uh, you know, there's, there is a disparity. And you know, the field has seen, as you were indicating, there used to be historically um, that uh, family offices just wrote checks to venture funds uh, and selecting a good fund is one uh, skill set. But now they're doing direct investments in companies, and if they haven't kind of seen the movie several times, uh, they they are definitely at a disadvantage comparatively. Not, not to mention the fact that you know a lot. I don't have academic studies to back this. Uh, actually, been encouraging some academics to pursue this study, but I think a not disproportionate amount of venture returns is concentrated in a handful of funds. That's not that is that's been studied quite a bit. But I think the unspoken part of that story is that a lot of venture returns, outstanding ones, come from cross-referral between those handful of firms. So mm. Firm A leads around firm B, um, you know, it calls up buddy at firm B to give them the several million dollars they need to complete the round uh, and vice versa. And they're all kind of enhancing their, their game. And, you know, uh, other than kind of the very largest family offices, a lot of family offices just don't have that, that investing social network. Yeah, that's interesting. So really, there's I, I think what you're what you're identifying there are at least two issues or hurdles right out of the gate that put family offices that are di- directly investing in venture funds at disadvantage. Number one being they just don't have they don't have the uh, the experience, so they don't have the sort of institutional knowledge. And number two, they may not have the network right. to get into the right funds. Is that I, pretty, I got, I pretty common? Point. Yeah, I mean, and I would add a third to that, which is often they don't have the resources um, to really properly diligence uh, the investments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's interesting there. There was a, uh, a friend of mine uh, had an interesting LinkedIn post where he basically I want to make sure I capture this correctly, but it was, it was basically which would you which would you prefer to be a thousand times 
um, better at picking ventures that would have a 10x return um, or you know, 100 times better picking ventures that had a 3x return or 25% uh, better at identifying ventures that would go to zero. Uh, and, when he <laughs> ran, and when he ran the numbers, um, you know, it was not surprisingly given his agenda, it was the 20, eliminating the 25% conquers that really mathematically, uh, you could debate some of his assumptions, but plus minus he was on the right mark. The ability to eliminate, I mean, of every venture, you know, even the best funds of 10 investments, the expectation is half will fail either absolutely completely or certainly not come close to returning investment funds, kind of three-ish will return one to two X. And then you're really hoping you pick two that can really do outsized returns. And that's how the industry really, uh, the best funds in the industry, uh, you know, make make their money. Um, so just the ability to eliminate the clunkers uh, is really significant because one of the things that is different about the venture game is if you're in the public market uh, and you invest money, unless you're really unlucky, your investment's not going to go to zero. The number of publicly traded companies, at least on the major exchanges that go to an absolute zero, is really pretty negligible. The number of bankruptcies a year mm -hmm. uh, that wipes out common equity. That's not the case. I mean, pick your number three, four, five out of 10 are going to go to zero, or at least for the common shareholders, uh, which most family offices will be initially, at least those shares will go to zero. Um, so the ability to kind of avoid some of the zeros um, is really critical and is even more critical in the early stage game. Yeah, that's such an interesting um, brain teaser to, to think through. But there's, um, you know, I think in that is the, the ability to, to analyze the risks inherent in uh, in making venture investments that like you, you know, you were sort of setting this up as say it's a family office where their, their core competency was in real estate, for example, and now they're getting into venture funds in the tech space. Well, the ability to, to weigh the risks of a real estate venture, even sort of setting that aside for a bit, cause that's a very broad category to begin with. And then weighing the risks in say the tech sector, it's like two different games. They're not, they're not equivalents at all. They're not, they're not equivalent, I mean, subject matter-wise, but they're even not economically. Yeah. And by that, I mean, the venture game has a very well-defined play. Um, there, you know, every venture deal in the United States, um, equity deal, is done on pretty much the same set of documents. Um, there, there's a form that was created in 2001, and every venture deal, you know, is 95-plus percent based on that form. And so all the variables that drive the economics of the venture game are common in pretty much every deal. What changes is kind of the coefficients and the variables. Is this 1x? Is this 2x? But the playing field is identical. The return expectations are identical. And they're very different than real estate. We are not playing in the venture game for kind of annual distributions or dividends. This is a long-term exit-focused game. Uh, and if you're a real estate investor, you're focused on, you know, on, on, on annual income. Yes, you want depreciation of the building, but the income is an important part of the equation in most real estate investments. That's completely not the case uh, in venture. And it, it's kind of almost like a red flag because every so often, You'll see an early stage company and they've kind of been struggling to to uh, fundraise and somebody will refer them to a family office or a high net worth um, real, you know, real estate investor um, who's really good at what they do and obviously made the money that they can make these investments. 
but they don't know the playing field. And they'll come up with deal terms, um, not only being onerous, but are just structured in such a way that the company will never be able to actually get venture financing, which in almost all cases it's going to need down the road. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so it's not just the ability to to evaluate the technology, but also to understand the the economics uh, of the venture game. The good news on the the first one is really hard, and sometimes you know if, if the fund is is large enough, you know it makes sense to bring in external consultants uh, to to make those kind of reads. Um, but the good news is on the playing field. It's not a complicated play if you just kind of have to do some reading and get up to speed and understand the field. And once you do, uh, you know, there, there are not a lot of twists to it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But to your point, then not having expectations, first of all, not having expectations that are outside of the expected marketplace, that'd be the first thing. So you can't, you're not going to be disappointed um, when you go into the marketplace and you get terms that weren't what you were expecting, like if you were looking for an annual stream of income. Um, but also then being able to go into the marketplace and understand what is actually available and what those terms actually are, and if they actually fit with whatever the investment philosophies happen to be for that family office. I mean, having those two pieces of information, I mean, it's easy enough for us to say, but having that, uh, it's not like, you know, one day you sort of snap your finger and it happens. It does take time to learn those sorts of things. There's there's an amount of education that has to go along with it. Is that a, a foot fault that you see in family offices where maybe they're jumping in before they've done the educational piece up front? So I think you see a variety. Um, it mm-hmm. depends kind of how the family office got to the um, got to the investment. In some cases, they're kind of following a venture fund. Uh, or, or somebody who's kind of familiar with the game. In other cases, they've hired an attorney um, who knows the parameters and can guide, kind of guide them. Uh, so, you know, from that perspective, uh, you know, say it's out of self-interest, but having an attorney, you know, who, who knows the game, who can kind of give you not just information about um, the parameters, but also what's market for those parameters, you know, what, what's, what are the commonly common terms, et cetera, uh, and what they're typically set at. Is, is really indispensable. And then, you know, and then you see people are like, <laughs> you're, you're kind of out there on a the ledge and there, there's no safety net below you. Um, and, you know, in some cases, they'll conclude a deal on bad terms. In other cases, and this might be worse in some ways, they'll conclude a deal with a kind of a company that really needs the money, or as I said, on, on terms that are unfinanceable going forward. Where they're really, they're really uh, cutting the hamstrings of the company yep. they're investing in because the company is now not set up. Maybe this is Series A, but the company is not set up for B and C. Right. Yeah. And 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 then you know the the common refrain is, well, we'll deal with it then, and we'll you know and we'll uh, waive it if it's something advantageous. But a lot of times, just seeing a deal structure like that will cause you know will cause future investors to question the wisdom of the management team that accepted money under these terms, uh, and they might you know. You don't want hair on the story, so to speak. You, you really you, you want you want as clean a story as possible, and it is really easy to see when 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 the investment terms for from around didn't come from somebody for, you know within the industry broad broadly speaking. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm curious um, for you personally when you're when you're confronted with clients who maybe they're thinking about structuring a deal a way that's a little unconventional. How much of how much of those, from, from your perspective, how much of those engagements do you view as, okay, my job is to just document the deal that they have made the best that I can on the terms that they've made? Or, 
okay, I need to educate them to understand the deal they need to make so they make the right deal. Yeah, so I can say without exception, really, I will at least highlight to them, you know, that the deal is off market, explain to them how it's off market, um, explain to them that, you know, if they're, if they're going to be seeking future venture financing, their economic goals will not be in alignment with this initial investor. So that I will do in all cases. You know, at, the, at the end of the day, it's still their risk call. Uh, and, it, it, and it bothers me because what a lot of them undervalue um, is opportunity cost. You know, these are smart people in a lot of cases that could be doing other things. Um, and so for them to invest two years with this, uh, you know, with this, let's call it uninformed money coming in with owner's terms, you know, only to have the thing crash and burn two years down the road because nobody will invest under those terms. You know, they burn two years of their life. And that just makes me feel bad. Um, but I, I'm pretty blunt, actually, by saying, you know, this is this is uninvestable. And on the flip side of it, I have the same talk when I represent investors that are coming into this. You know, I, I literally had one last month where I said, and I didn't know the investor before it was referred to me. Um, but I said, you know, based on the way you're structuring these terms, um, I'm suspecting your experiences in the real estate, which was correct. I said, uh-huh. that's not going to work here. Um, and I did, we didn't, I didn't kind of get them to 100%, but we kind of hodgepodged it in a way that just didn't look as, as awful as day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> By the way, I would fit into that camp too, where I, if I get presented with something that is just so unconventional, I just can't help myself. I'm just like, I have to tell you, this is just out of the ordinary and Either what you're asking for or what they're asking for is just not conventional at all. And I just can't, I, I don't really view my role in that scenario as just a, a cipher or just like a, a pure scrivener. You know, it's like if they hired me, clearly they want my opinion. I think that's They can right. get legal I, documents online if they want them. Yeah, I mean, I, it's more than that. I just, I don't feel right. In other words, I want, yeah. I want a long-term success. But yeah. The investor side. And for the company side, and in this case, what's frustrating is everybody's being shot. Um, so, you, you know, going back to the investor and saying, listen, I understand these are your terms and your expectations, but here's what's going to happen. That's still a conversation everybody should have before two years worth of money and two years worth of the founder time is wasted. You know, right. It pains me to see that. There's one little niche area, uh, I think, for family office investors that's somewhat particular to them that it could be possibly different from a typical VC fund. And that's in the the qualified small business stock space, if you have a, a company that qualifies in that way, because the family office structure potentially um, allows them to really double or triple or quadruple the amount of tax savings that they can get under those particular code provisions, depending on how they're structured and how they might use certain trusts to do that. That would be different from a typical venture fund. Um, I mean, even venture funds, because they're all passed through vehicles, are still are still kind of following the flow of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're, I mean, some funds are you know, almost exclusively institutional LPs, but for funds that have high, high net worth individuals um, and family offices, I mean, you you see the qualified, I mean, there it, it is, I wouldn't say an absolute requirement, but it is it is pretty common requirement in early stage financings, and it's usually not an issue uh, for the companies. And it's ironically enough, in kind of the crazy venture market of, of 2021, the sums started getting very quickly above, you know, above the qualified small business thresholds. But 
as we're kind of returning to a period of a little bit more sanity for the early round that generally isn't isn't an issue yeah i think it's just it's more uh it's probably something that yeah if you have a pure institutional investor where at the top you're not talking about humans you're talking about yeah. companies at the very top their sensitivity to these qsbs issues is going to be different because they don't care but for a family office that QSBS feature is that could be the thing that could actually drive the success of the investment, really, in yep. many ways. No question. No question. There's another element to uh, family offices that I've always thought was interesting and different from, say, a typical VC fund. Yes, at the top of the VC fund, you could have very wealthy individuals who, frankly, could almost have their own family offices at the very top. Um, but for family offices, they they almost operate like uh, I almost think of them as like Coca-Cola. You think about Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola is going to go invest. They're going to invest in a company. Well, Coca-Cola is doing it because the overall umbrella of Coca-Cola is going to be enriched. They don't need to suck the money out of Coca-Cola to enrich Coca-Cola. And that's similar for uh, a family office. The entire family office umbrella is going to be enriched by this. They don't need to suck all the money out in order to be enriched like, say, uh, a, a, a venture capital getting carried interests or you know those sorts of fund manager types they need to suck money out of the investment to win but the family office that the money doesn't have to leave the family office they're trying to sort of enrich the whole and they that that similarity weirdly uh at least in my mind is something that a lot of private families have a hard time grasping that they're more like coca-cola than they are like the fund manager and it's it's a I think it's a strange dynamic, but it's something that I run into a lot. Just trying to help people understand that. Yeah, I, it was the point I made earlier that at the end of the day, even though ostensibly venture is 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 the long term money, you really, particularly in the current environment, you're really responsible to the LPs who are your shareholders, and mm -hmm. you know, and and interim performance manage matters. Uh, you can kind of take a more holistic, long term view you know, uh, of what an investment means uh, when, when you don't have that kind of pressure um, where you, you and, and quite frankly, you can also, you know, pursue, uh, you know, other goals alongside it, public benefit companies, yep. SG, right? You can have other aspects to it other than true return. Uh, now, granted, there, there are a lot of uh, venture funds uh, that, uh, that view that as part of their investment goals, but they're, they're still you know, a return number that they're going to be showing to investors uh, that at least would argue for weighting return uh, very heavily in investment. You're right. Family offices are more holistic, uh, both in terms of their allocations, uh, their return expectations, their time horizons, mm -hmm. uh, and, and kind of the purity of their financial goals or their diversity of financial goals as one of the number. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you also about, you mentioned things getting back to in your words, normal. Um, what is what is normal look like to you in that market, or maybe for people who aren't as familiar, what's different about 2021 that was abnormal? We're, and now we're getting back to what is normal. So ventures last, you know, ventures is a cyclical business, but we've basically been on, since 2009 on what I call a UTR path, um, which is uh, up and to the right. Um, so. <laughs> Really, I mean, the slope might have varied at times, but it's been moving up to, to the right very, very steadily. Yeah. Um, and 
that kind of uninterrupted uh, movement for, for more than a dozen years was, was very long. Uh, so even going into COVID, we were already kind of coming, coming through a couple of years where uh, people would have argued the, the venture market was overvalued. And then for about an hour or so in March of 2020, uh, the venture market kind of froze up with the rest of the world. Uh, and then everyone realized that uh, uh, evidently COVID is really good for venture. Um, and <laughs> the tail end of 2020 and 2021 uh, were really ridiculous. Um, and uh, you know, the, the primary motivator, there's huge amounts of money uh, were out there, both venture funds raising much more frequently, but also um, mutual funds. And people may not know this, but their mutual funds, the conventional mutual funds from a Fidelity or T. Rowe price, can hold somewhere, you know, somewhere between five and ten percent of their assets in a liquid stocks uh, like venture stock. Mm -hmm. So you may have Uber, you may be a part owner of Uber, and you may have been a part owner of WeWork uh, without realizing. Uh, both Fidelity and T. Rowe Price became major later stage venture investors. Uh, corporate corporate venture funds. Uh, really uh, came into their own, and private equity started to more than dabble in venture. So huge amount of money in the market in late 2020 and 2021, um, and valuations went through the roof. The primary motivator really seemed to be FOMO, um, so deals had to be done quickly, minimal diligence. Um, and then um, you know things started to soften around New Year's, um, and then with the invasion of the Ukraine, um, I think it kind of spooked the venture market, and you saw a lot of LP, a lot of venture funds kind of putting public guidance to their uh, to their portfolio companies, saying slow down on the spend. Um, the numbers are softening, though not as much as you would think, um, and that's partially because when uh, a venture has to write down its value because it can't raise money at the same high valuation, it then forces the fund. To write down the value of its portfolio, which obviously makes its numbers look not as good when it goes right. up fundraising. So there's kind of a symbiotic, symbiotic, symbiotic interest between founders and their funds to try to maintain a valuation and increase it um, for as long as possible. And you can kind of do that depending on the situation for a quarter to maybe at most a year. And we're kind of seeing that stuff getting delayed. Um, so deal terms are softening, but not dramatically. Valuations are dropping but not consistently um, and not, again, as dramatically as you would think based on what's happening to the public tech markets. Right. My guess is it's going to start getting more and more dramatic in Q3 and Q4. Now, that said, right now, we're still well above pre-COVID levels. Um, so what the new normal looks like, how it compares to February 2020 is an open question. If, you, if it's really being driven primarily by public company comparables, um, you know, we have a ways to go, uh, but that's not clear. Right. There are other forces in terms of all this money that's still sitting on the sideline that may keep valuations higher uh, than they are in the public market, but even that imbalance, but there's, the private market can't exist in a vacuum. And uh, at some point it has to kind of sync up with ultimate expectations of value in the public market. Yeah. Do you think volatility in the, I guess, negative volatility in this case in the public market drives money to the private market? Is there is there a relationship there or not? Um, to some extent, as long as the story is looking good. Mm. Um, but if, if, if funds eventually have to start doing write downs, um, you know, all, all, all bets are off. And certainly money kind of fled venture in 2002 and 2009. 
Um, if you want to kind of see where you might see it first, um, there are a handful of state pension funds um, that, because of Freedom of Information Act laws, um, have to report out their venture returns on the funds that they're limited partners. And that may, may give you some, some window, and I suspect we'll start seeing that. I mean, I think you'll see that across private equity in general, like college endowments. Uh, you know, 2021 was just such a ridiculous year. 2022 numbers are going to be very sober. Yeah, very interesting. Well, Dror, I could talk about this stuff with you all day long, um, but I know I don't have all day and you don't have all day. So I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, if people are trying to connect with you, what's the easiest way for them to do that? Um, send me an email at, uh, at drawerfooter at uh, ramonlaw.com. Uh, That's uh, D-R-O-R um, and uh, F-U-T-T-E-R. Um, and also um, feel free to follow me on, on LinkedIn. Uh, shockingly, I am the only drawer footer on LinkedIn. Um, and I do post a lot <laughs> of venture-related content. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I would encourage anybody to, to follow Drawer on, on LinkedIn because he's, he's being modest in a lot of when he says a lot of venture-related content, he posts a ton of venture-related content that's very useful and insightful and interesting. So anybody who's interested in this area, you're going to get well-educated just following Drawer. So Drawer, I can't thank you enough. I, I know you're very busy, and I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Thank you. My pleasure, son. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.